welcome to another episode of the Agile Weekly Podcast. I'm Clayton. I'm Drew. And with us today, we've got Jim Benson. I might know him better on Twitter as our founder. Um, and we wanted to talk today about um, the kind of cognitive bias and estimation. And Jim, I see that you've written a, I guess it's maybe kind of an ebook or Kindle kind of book about, um, you know, kind of plans and cognitive biases and just biases in general, it sounds like, in plans. So could you kind of give us an overview of what it was that prompted you to write that book? Sure. So my career actually started in psychology. And uh, as I worked my way through being an urban planner where I built really, really large things like subway systems and freeways, and then later when I came to, um, to software development, I, I, it was incredibly obvious to me that people just couldn't estimate their way out of a paper bag. And most of the breakdowns in projects, regardless of what they were or who they were for, generally centered around problems with the estimates. And so I started to look into reasons why that was, and I started finding clues in psychology. So the psychology of how we approach problems, uh, how we gather information, how we make decisions, all of those combine to really muck up our estimates. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, you know, one thing, and I don't know if you're part of this camp, but um, kind of a popular maybe mindset nowadays seems to be that uh, estimates are wasteful and, you know, no one, no one ever gets them right. So why bother doing them? You know, where do you stand on that? So Eisenhower said that planning was, uh, important and the estimates or and, and plans were useless. So I believe that the same thing is true, that, that estimation is indispensable and that estimates are useless. So going through the es- the exercise of estimating is actually rather important. Uh, but, when you change it to an active word instead of a physical object, going from an estimate to estimating, then estimating becomes something that you do constantly throughout the project, and that's much more helpful. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think of it. I think, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of teams that probably experience the the idea of, you know, they do some estimates and they kind of get held against them or something like that. So I could, but I, I agree that there's something important about that mental exercise, maybe. Mm. Um now, in terms of maybe some of the biases or some of the more psychology things that you kind of hinted at, what are some examples there that you could give us about uh, some things that maybe some agile teams might face? Okay, well, <laughs> so I'll just start to cherry pick, and I'll come to the, the big one, maybe third. Okay. Uh, so the first one is something called uh, the availability heuristic. And that's that we look back on things that have happened and we pick out exemplars of either our fears or our hopes. And then we start to make decisions based on those exemplars. So uh, if my the, the worst part of this is that an exemplar can actually be kind of status quo. And so what, what we found is the error in estimates follow almost a perfect Pareto curve or almost a perfect power curve. Mm-hmm. And so we start to feel that we're very good at estimates because we actually do get them right or about right or excusably right about 80% of the time. The other 20% of the time, we're, we, are, we, are, we perceive that we are dead wrong. Uh, and so we say, man, if I could just get that last 20% right, everything would be fine. But it's actually a natural power curve. It's a natural law, especially in software development, 
that we're always going to fall prey to because there's too much variation in our work to for us to estimate accurately 100% of the time. So do you think that there's anything, you know, say, take like Scrum as a methodology that, um, you know, puts a lot of emphasis on predictability and the time boxes and, you know, usually right. in most of the training literature, there's a whole, there's a lot of emphasis on the estimates, you know, specifically planning poker. Um, right. Is that something that, you know, on a Scrum team, do you think that they just need to find some way to overcome some of those biases and some of those problems and kind of just deal with it? Or should they find kind of creative ways to uh, avoid those issues or maybe creative ways to do estimates differently? So I'll start this by saying that it's dangerous to ask me about planning poker. <laughs> and then I will try my best to state this as succinctly as I possibly can. Um, there are planning poker itself was devised to get around groupthink and other uh, cognitive biases that plague teams. Uh, the theory behind it was if you got people together and they in silence and at least cognitively separated from each other came out with like an, an opening bid for what the number of story points were for a given story or a given task or a given feature or, or whatever it was that you're estimating against, that that would overcome the bias. What happens in teams almost uniformly is that as they do planning poker over time, the team's um, estimates become more uniform. And people see that as a good thing because they see that as the team um, uh, becoming more accurate. But what's actually happening is the team is learning how everybody else learns. There's a heuristic that is being developed within the team that says when we as a team see this, we do these things. So the individuals stop acting like individuals and they start acting like a team. And over time, planning poker becomes less and less useful because the individual is sublimated to, to the will of the group. And a lot of people will argue with me about that because it's a hard thing for you to swallow when you are an individual because you don't feel like you're doing that. But, but the actions of the coalescence of the estimates of the teams are a very good indication that that indeed is what is happening. Is that something that, you know, uh, if we go back to the kind of atypical or prototypical, sorry, scrum team, um, if they are kind of coalescing on those estimates, does that really matter if the estimates are kind of – if they can come full circle to kind of a groupthink thing if the you know they're kind of using their velocity? Maybe their estimates are all getting close to each other because they're all kind of learning uh, maybe subconsciously how everyone else estimates. But does that really matter in the overall scheme of things? Is that something that they should avoid? It, it, it doesn't – yeah, it doesn't matter because they're still going to be wrong 20 percent of the time, not because they're wrong. So uh, I, I want to make this clear that, that the people doing playing poker are not, are not wrong. The estimates that they are doing for, say you have a three-point story and, and you have um, six of them and four of them are, um, uh, are right. In other words, they are, they each take like, let's say, let's say that the, a three point story takes three hours to complete. They do three, 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 and that's fine. And the next one is seven and the next one is 11. That is, that is a valid distribution on a Pareto scale. So all three of those different time signatures or timestamps 
are all valid for that three-point story. The problem is our, our um, commitment, the sprint commitment, does not take that into account. So one of those threes is going to end up taking 11 hours. It's going to make people blow their sprint uh, commitment, and people are going to feel bad about that. And then they're going to wonder why, and they're going to try and fix it next time. But it's not really valid to fix because statistically that was a valid distribution. So, so I would question that a, a little bit, Jim, in the sense of you're, you're absolutely right. If you, you look at probability theory, you know, you roll a dice, uh, you know, three six-sided dice or six six-sided dice, a number of times you're going to get a, a distribution curve that's just like you're, you're talking. But if, if a team were to do a commitment-driven approach to planning, I would argue that they would know that one three-point story was 11 hours and one three-point story was seven hours before they actually made the commitment. And, and that's awesome. That's completely awesome, and, and I'm happy with that. The, the thing is, is that right now we are – this conversation that we are having is about a hypothetical team that is operating at a hypothetical level of self-awareness. And most teams, A, aren't that self-aware – and B, don't have the luxury to backpedal when they find out that there's variation in their system. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the real problem is that uh, we've propagated for far too long in this community that yesterday's weather is a good way um, when using story points to predict um, tomorrow and then actually ask teams to make commitments against yesterday's weather. And as any weatherman will tell you, that's a, they're not probably willing to bet their job on yesterday's weather. And I don't think that... Uh, sprint teams should be doing that either and and so you know how do we start to educate people that if you're going to take the time to estimate and if you're going to take the time to use velocity that you use the proper techniques to actually make it meaningful i i would almost argue to most teams that it's not even worth them taking the time to estimate because they're not doing release planning so they're you know they're estimating for i guess just to make their boss feel like they're doing as much work as they say they can do but uh you know it's not being used for anything meaningful so uh, you know, kind of almost defeats the purpose. Yes, I, I would I would agree with that. So uh, I, I do want to make it clear that that my my dislike of the measure of story points doesn't really have too much to do with agile or the act of estimating. It has to do with creating a system that doesn't translate well from one part of the organization to another. So, you, so story points end up being integers. Those integers are communicated to people who try and interpret them. And they're going to interpret them incorrectly because for the team, it's a relative measure of, you know, what ideally would be bizarreness. You know, that, that's, that's a 13-point story because it's, it's really quite bizarre. Um, but other people are going to uniformly... Um, uh, interpret those as either money or time. And that's very dangerous, and it leads to a lot of unnecessary conversations and unnecessary meaning. So I actually think that the act of estimation is awesome, but that creating an artifact that can be so easily misinterpreted is dangerous. Well, is, 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 it, is, it, is it really dangerous, or is it just being used improperly? And one of the things that I would argue is that you know, I, I think that a reason why teams 
um, should probably use points if they're if they're going to estimate is because they are integers and they can be used um, for things. The problem is that people use them incorrectly for time. So if I try to, you know, as you stated earlier, say how many hours is three points equal to that? That is very very dangerous because uh, three points by itself. Um, is is going to be very highly variable. However, if I've got a hundred three-point stories in my backlog or in my release plan, um, I can probably get some normalized numbers out of there. So, you know, if I say, you know, hey, for the last you know x number of sprints, we've been doing you know roughly uh, x number of story points. Uh, why it's still an estimate, I can predict the future to a degree. Um, you know, several several weeks or even a month or so out to be able to say, I should be able to get roughly mm-hmm. somewhere in the neighborhood of this. I think people get in trouble when they make them absolutes, right? When they don't have the discussions around it and then they take those numbers to be, well, you know, you said you could do 30 story points, so I took 30 story points times 10 iterations and you, by God, you better exactly. give me 300 story points, right? Like that's dangerous. Right. You- exactly. And uh, you talk about the kind of state of estimating, and I'm, I'm wondering, what, what does that look like? If it's not story points, what does that look like? And also, how did you apply that with the bigger projects uh, like subway systems or whatever that you did? Okay, so um, I, I, I will answer that by, by skipping forward to the one co- – because if, if we're having a cognitive bias conference or conversation, I should probably say something about cognitive bias. So um, – the one I'll talk about really quickly here is is the planning fallacy. And the planning fallacy is exemplified by something called Hofstetter's Law. And Hofstetter's Law states that when given a task, uh, people will uniformly underestimate that task even when they are aware of Hofstetter's Law. <laughs> um, and the planning fallacy basically says that, that, that we as individuals are really lousy at estimating. We're extremely lousy when estimating for other people we're unbelievably lousy when estimating for ourselves and we're just super incredibly terrible at it when estimating for ourselves with witnesses. So when you get into a situation where you're estimating, we have a lot of natural tendencies to underestimate the thing that we're estimating. And this has been tested by uh, psychologists and social scientists and, and behavioral economists around the world. So it's been shown to be a cross-cultural kind of universal human condition. Uh, And part of the reason for that, I believe, is that we don't understand the role of variation in our work. So we don't understand that Pareto distribution along a three-point story. Therefore, when we promise things to people, we, we promise them like, every time I do this task, it will take me three hours. In software development, we do not have that luxury. Our work is way too variable. So what I would like or what I replace that with is both or either cycle time or lead time with some sort of visual control. And it might be a Kanban and it might be something else. But if you have a system that can measure when you start working on a task or a feature or a user story, and when, to the point that you finish it, that's its cycle time. And it doesn't care what excuse you have about why it took longer than you thought it would. So what we'll do is we'll say, you know, that task was a three-hour task, but I got interrupted four times, so it took me 12 hours. Well, I got bad news for you. You know, from a deliverable standpoint, it was a 12-hour task. So... 
replacing um, story points with an actual statistical measure of what is completed and how long it takes to complete that thing is extremely powerful. And when we do that, we get an added benefit. Uh, we used to have to say, well, you know, this is a two-point story, this is a three-point story, this is an eight-point story, and so forth. Uh, now we can say, that story is too big, or this story I can do. And I don't care if it's going to take me an hour, or if it's difficult, or I don't care if it's going to take me 13 hours, because over the course of the project, the distribution of those stories from small to large is going to be relatively stable. It's going to be relatively like it was in the last project. So we've been finding that that distribution is uniform or fairly uniform between projects. And when we start to distinguish between things like, you know, a three or a, a five-point story, um, we run into something that's called distinction bias, yeah. where human beings love to figure out what the difference of nearly identical things are. So when I'm doing this before a crowd, I can hold up two green pens and people instantly, everybody in the room who's looking at me, are trying to figure out what the differences are between the two things that I'm holding in my hand. And they're both the same green marker pens. Hmm. Um, so using uh, a statistical measure that is impartial to our excuses uh, and immune from a couple of these biases, not all of them, but a couple, uh, helps us build more predictable models. So, so the the one thing that I could say that could be a potential downside to that is it requires you actually do the work first. And so if you're trying to say, you know, hey, here's here's you know six week, here's a project, um, you know, that we might want to tackle, and we're not sure how feasible it is, uh, you know, developers, could you give me some ballpark? So that I know, am I looking at something that might be six weeks or something that's 60 weeks? Uh, I don't have to be precise on it, but, you know, I, I need a rough ballpark to know if it's something that I want to go grab funding for. H how do you do that in the cycle time model? Well, there's two things. Uh, if you're starting and you don't have a cycle time, then you do a traditional estimate. If you are starting and you do have cycle time, then you use your cycle time. Um, so you can only start from where you are. And the fact that you don't have data yet doesn't mean that you can't collect that data. So um, I, I am particularly well known for hating metrics. I don't like to use that many of them. Uh, and so basically the only numeric metric that I use are the two that we're, that we're talking about. Um, and the reason, the reason for that is that most metrics are lagging indicators. So right now, the question that you're asking me is, it, you know, if I get this metric, that's all well and good, but it's, it's at best going to be a real-time indicator and more likely is going to be a lagging indicator. So if you're starting a big project, everybody's going to need to get around and they're going to need to figure out, you know, what the level of effort assumed is for that project. After you have this information... And perhaps before, if you could run some spikes, you can start to figure out what that cycle time is. And then you can say things like, I believe that the project you're giving me, or we agree that the project that you're giving me is made up of these 50 initial user stories. So you are now buying an option from this team on 50 user stories. We agree to deliver for you 50 user stories. 
between now and the completion of the project, which we anticipate, given our current cycle time, is going to be this date, we will do 50 user stories for you. And frankly, we don't care what they are. So as we move through the project, we're really not worried about what these specific user stories that are coming up are because we as software development professionals know that over the course of the project, 80% of the features change anyway. So, so they're, basically, they're basically buying a block of work as opposed to a product and assuming that that product will be able to be done within that block of work. Yeah, so I think we've definitely stepped into a, a very interesting conversation, but unfortunately we've uh, we've run out yeah. of time here. So um, <laughs> if if people are listening wanted to find out more about you, or um, you know if there's any um, you know books you think they should read or anything like that, they should check out. Uh, where would they do that, and what kind of suggestions would you have for them? Okay, so um, the the self serving parts uh, are uh, my name is Jim Benson, and I'm at our founder on Twitter, and I'm our founder on just about everything else that has ever been put on the web. Um, uh, we currently have three books out at Modus Press. One is Scrum Bond by Corey Lattice. Another is Personal Kanban by me and Tony and Maria Berry. And the third one, which is specifically about these um, cognitive biases, is called Why Plans Fail. And that's just an ebook. It's a little two ninety nine ebook. The Personal Kanban website, which is personalkanban.com, uh, has tons of blog posts and free information. My personal blog is ourfounder.com, and my company is Modus Cooperandi, uh, which um, I'm not going to spell for you, but that's what it's called. <laughs> we'll use Google <laughs> Suggest. How about that? Yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, we also like to invite the listeners to, uh, to check out the Agile Weekly Facebook page uh, where you can kind of continue the conversations for these different uh, podcasts and whatnot that we have. And uh, we wanted to say thanks for joining us today, Jim. We really appreciated the conversation. Thank you, guys. This is fun. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to integramtech.com slash podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Integram Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integramtech.com or subscribe on iTunes.